This is Earth Files, the award-winning news site with the latest updates in science, environment, and real X-Files. Podcasting in-depth reports beyond the 6 o'clock news by Emmy Award-winning journalist Linda Moulton Howe. Hi, everybody. I've got white, fluffy, fluffy tonight with me. And yesterday, if you could have seen Fluffy and Chocolate in this office, looking out these glass windows because they hadn't seen and I hadn't seen anything like the windstorm that came through here. You've probably heard about it were, uh, some headlines in the New York Times that I have. Uh, Crazy weather in Colorado, roasting yesterday, snowing today. Well, with that huge change, we had something that we rarely see. We had winds coming from the east, and they were powerful, treacherous. I stood at these glass windows looking at a tree out here, a thick, thick, stiff juniper that normally hardly moves ever in any normal storm. And it was being tossed around. The branches were being pulled apart. And as I stood there, and Fluffy and Chocolate would run up to the window, like they could see all these branches that they normally don't see moving. And I could tell they were both fascinated and afraid. And I sort of felt exactly the same way because as I stood seeing with this strong east, like take, think of huge air coming down the canyon, because I'm right below Sandia, and coming from the east normally doesn't come that way. And it was like it was just pounding, pounding. And uh, I thought, what if one of these branches comes off of one of these big trees that normally don't move, and now they're moving like matchsticks? And breaks the window. And those are the kinds of things it seems like that we're all being confronted with more and more in this strange, strange age of COVID where everybody is waiting to get out of 2020, but who knows what's going to be in 2021. Well, one of the issues, uh, which is good, is this is a good one, is to keep doing our Earth Files YouTube channel. I would love it if we were all together from a thousand different languages, a thousand different backgrounds, all talking about the same question. If we're not alone in the universe, then who is here with us? Well, I've been getting a lot of questions from a lot of you about the headlines that have been making really now, global headlines concerning those uh, bloodless mutilations of horses in France. And I'm not going to show images on my Earth Files YouTube channel, and I'm not going to go into in-depth reports. But what I would like to share, because so many of you are asking, is that at myearthfiles.com, my uh, news website that I have been doing since the end of 1998, the beginning of 1999. It is a website that I put my real X-Files into. So right now, 
we're showing on the screen, you go to earthfiles.com and you will see already that I have done a report on the French horse mutilations and you will also find a brand new report about something that is related and that is the mutilation of deer. Ever since I started investigating this in 1979, I have done uh, investigations that have involved deer and a lot of different animals. And when you go into the Earth Files report that I have, you're not going to be looking at anything that is gory. That's why it has always been a mystery since the early 1960s pristineness. How could this happen to animals without tracks or blood? Well, maybe the answer is like this cartoon that appeared in Colorado Springs, Colorado back in the 1970s um, before I actually had started investigating animal mutilations. And I've always thought that this cartoon probably summed up what law enforcement thought more than anything else. And that it would explain how you could have these bloodless uh, animals found all over the world that would include cattle, horses, sheep, goats, pigs, even reindeer, elk, deer, rabbits, and foxes, all of them with variations of having an ear or both ears, eyes, jaw flesh, genitals, rectum, vaginal tissue, removed and here is the part to remember the whole bottom line for more than 60 years is that there's no blood now the current situation in france which one of the newspapers blurred out the animal so i'm showing this one it is confusing because police keep talking about arresting a couple of human suspects but investigators recently have announced there might be as many as 153 horses killed this year in France by the mutilation phenomenon. And the locations are widespread all over the country. I'm going to keep investigating and reporting about this in my earthfiles.com news website. And then I will complement it here in our live weekly Earth Files YouTube channel when there is something that might be a new development or something that is especially mysterious. I will bring that and then cross-reference to my earthfiles.com news website. Now, COVID news. I was really surprised to see this today. The United Kingdom has suddenly seen a huge spike in new cases. There were about 3,000 new cases reported Sunday and Monday of this week, and that is the highest daily COVID count for the UK since May. And that provoked Prime Minister Johnson and his health secretary shown here to tell reporters yesterday uh, that social gatherings above only six people will be banned in England starting 
September 14th, this next Monday. The prime minister said, quote, we need to act now to stop the virus spreading. So we are simplifying and strengthening the rules on social contact, making them easier to understand for the police to enforce, close quote, and these new social distancing rules and masks that will be in effect on next Monday, they will have fines beginning at 100 pounds if violated. Now, I'm hoping that we're going to get a good, effective vaccine soon to help all of us who are struggling with this pandemic and all of these rules and all of these feeling like you're kind of caught up in a straitjacket sometimes. But at the same time, I don't know about you guys, but I go out at night just to look at the stars and when the moon is there and it helps me. It gives me this feeling that there's still hope in life and that life on planet Earth is still something to keep fighting for. And those night skies sort of increase my curiosity about other intelligences already here in our solar system and on our moon. The world knows that on July 20th of 1969, NASA astronaut Neil Armstrong was the first human to step on the moon. Then he and Buzz Aldrin walked around for three hours, did experiments, picked up moon dust and rocks, and left a U.S. flag on the moon along with a plaque that says, quote, here, men from the planet Earth first set foot upon the moon July 1969 A.D. We came in peace for all mankind, close quote. What the public did not know was that NASA had a 10-second delay in its public communication channel with the astronauts for that historic trip, meaning what we were seeing on television and what we heard was always 10 seconds behind what was happening for the astronauts. And the NASA could use that 10 second delay for whatever might happen, including going to a different channel, deciding to change something, but the world would never know as long as they switched to a channel that would be different and they would have 10 seconds to do that. This week, I learned what one communications technician working for Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland, heard with his own ears. His name is Ron Holland. He is 77 years old and retired in Maryland. He wrote me in an email, quote, I am a retired NASA contractor who has worked in NASA and NOAA space programs for 37 years. I worked for RCA, GE, and Computer Sciences Corporation. 
Before those, I was enlisted in the Navy where I was assigned to the National Security Agency, NSA, at Fort Meade, Maryland, for three years during the Vietnam War in the 60s. I had a top secret clearance with the NSA before beginning my career with NASA and in spacecraft operations and communications. My last work represented here was with the Hubble Space Telescope that was the HST ground operations at Johns Hopkins University, NASA Goddard, and HST servicing missions one and two in planning, and at NASA headquarters consulting to NASA's chief engineer. But in 1969, Ron Holland was working for the Goddard Space Flight Center in Building 14, Greenbelt, Maryland, as a communications technician. He had also worked in secure communications for the NSA. He talked to me this week about how Goddard helped back up communications for NASA Houston's control room during the historic July 1969 Apollo 11 flight to the moon. That allowed him to hear what was being said in that 10 second delay that NASA had on live communications with astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. Here now is retired NSA and Goddard Communications technician Ron Holland about what he heard at the Goddard Space Flight Center in the 10-second delay after astronaut Neil Armstrong made his famous first human step onto the moon's surface. The way Goddard worked was because they separated the operations control center into scientific satellites and manned flight. I worked on the scientific side and we would be there for backup for the manned flights. We'd listen to their operations and be ready to take over if we needed to. So Goddard was working in tandem with NASA. Yeah, Goddard, most people don't know because they don't advertise it as a backup for Houston. Ron, can you take us now to what you heard in the 10-second delay on July 20th, 1969, right after NASA astronaut Neil Armstrong made his first step onto the moon from the Apollo 11 lander? The transmission that I heard in Goddard Space Flight Center Operations Control was the part the public never hears, and that's the 10-second delay they cut it off as soon as the words were said. What I heard and remember is, and Neil Armstrong said this, they're watching us from the crater. They are watching us from the crater, quote unquote. And how did you interpret that? I did talk it over with the other controllers who were called controllers then, because by this point I'd become a supervisor in the control center. We talked among ourselves and we knew that this meant people that were not from the same place we were. Meaning not homo sapien sapien from Earth. As far as we knew, right. And what did the people on the ground say? We, of course, were all space nuts. We lived and talked and ate and drank space. So we, we kind of had our own ideas about what was out there in the universe. Neil Armstrong was on the surface of the moon when he said that. He was on the surface. 
Yes. We decided that it could be two things. One, either extraterrestrials or our own people, because we had suspicions that the Air Force had already had some presence on the moon. Can you please elaborate on that? We had suspicions. We had no proof of any kind. And since it was on the dark side, we had noticed on some of the imagery that came back after we saw the hard copy of the uh, photographs, areas had been smoothed over. We wonder what they're hiding there because we knew how it should look and how it did look. Okay, if I understand what you're saying, that you all had objective photographs of certain parts of the moon, like Tranquility, where Apollo 11 landed, and that you also were aware that there were other photographs of the moon that somebody had airbrushed. That's what you mean, airbrushed out. From the dark side, yeah, from the dark side. Meaning on the dark backside of the moon, you already had photographs that somebody was taking, and the suspicion was that the Air Force was working independent or separate from NASA. Yes. And you're saying that what you guys would end up seeing would be photographs on the backside that were clearly airbrushed on the moon. Yes. Can you describe at least one structure that you have seen in a photograph unofficially? The structure had a lot of right angles to it, and it was rather tall, but it was so dark, being on the dark side of the moon, when they took the photographs, you couldn't really be sure. But there were shadows, and it made it pretty obvious that it was a structure. Tall with a lot of right angles. Yes, 90-degree angles. Like a building. Yes, And did anybody suggest who had built it? Meaning of ETs, we talk about Nordics, greys, reptilians, on and on. Did anybody at that time when you were working in the 67 to the 70s, did anybody suggest that they knew who had built this tall building with a lot of right angles on the backside of the moon? This would have been among the contractors, and there was just a discussion between ourselves and There weren't any real uh, engineering analysis done on them, but it was just observation, and we kind of came to a consensus that this was not built by us. It had to be built by somebody else because mainly getting that amount of weight to the moon would be very, very difficult and expensive because the the weight ratio problem. And if they didn't have anti-gravity, then they'd have one hell of a time making a spacecraft big enough to bring that kind of material to the moon. How did the Air Force get up on the moon to orbit and take photographs of the structures on the backside of the moon that they had airbrushed out? I can only tell you what I suspect. That is that uh, the Air Force has capabilities that are far beyond what we are aware of today and had them back as early as the uh, 50s after the Second World War. The Germans came over, von Braun and all his buddies came over. They were involved in a very intense scientific program that created a lot of new capability and had expanded on what was already known and what they had been working on in Germany, and they brought a lot of that with them. Some of that may have even included anti-gravity. So with Paperclip, we brought over the best of the best of the German scientists 
who were working down in White Sands Proving Ground at that time, now called White Sands Missile Range today. Their public charter was to develop a rocket program for the United States, as Hitler had been having them develop for Germany. But in the process, what you're saying is that those scientists came with technology that was already advanced under the Hitler regime, and that we then were able to appropriate some of the advanced technology from Germany for us. Correct. Not only that, along with help from the Roswell experience, too. Craft that came down in New Mexico with bodies both dead and alive were also appropriated. And reverse engineering. In that reverse engineering of extraterrestrial biological entity craft in New Mexico and elsewhere, the United States Air Force was then able to take advantage of that advanced extraterrestrial technology to get to the backside of the moon to take photographs of structures? That would be my understanding. The United States militarizes everything, even if it's intended for peace from the beginning. It's turned into a weapon. After our interview, Ron Holland emailed me the following comment. Linda, I remember that voice circuit, meaning what he was listening to. And as soon as the brief statement by Neil Armstrong about being watched was said, meaning on that 10-second delay, the NASA circuit was cut off. I suspect NASA went to the medical channel, which was private between the astronauts and Houston, close quote. And I would like to share why this was so significant to me, to hear from Ron Holland. Probably like a lot of you, I heard about the anecdotal statement that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin saw some descriptions were 300 foot deep or 300 feet wide, silver lens shapes lined up on a crater. I heard information from somebody who worked in the Navy who said there might have been more than three William Mills Tompkins, who worked for the Navy, who passed a couple of years ago, has uh, worked with Dr. Bob Wood on two different books having to do with what he learned about non-humans on the moon, on Mars, throughout the solar system, on Earth when he was in the Navy, and talked about having seen with his own eyes photographs that showed non-humans, he said reptiles, with craft. So over the years came all of these different anecdotal stories. But until Ron Holland, he is the very first person who I take at his word with all of his background, everything that he has sent me, he heard with his own ears in that 10-second delay circuit that nobody else that I've ever talked to had been in a position to listen. 
And so here is something that has come, I've shared, because I think it is so important to keep trying to attach whenever it is possible actual first-hand testimony, evidentiary material to the stories that we have heard in pieces and various nuances and rumors, I now am convinced because of Ron Holland that there was a 10-second delay, NASA was listening, Armstrong was seeing. They are there on the crater watching us. Who, though, was the non-human inside of whatever was on the craters watching Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong there in the Sea of Tranquility, planting a flag, picking up rocks, doing the things that they did while Michael Collins was orbiting uh, the moon above them. So. I will extend again tonight if there is anyone who has first-hand information with first-hand material that's evidentiary about what really happened during Apollo 11 when apparently, from everything I've understood, that was sort of like the first we see something that they knew. They had known since World War II and before that they were dealing with some kind of other intelligence that was had technology that left uh, our scientists in kind of stun about what it could do. So in a, in a strange way, this is like bringing a piece that is firsthand and we haven't had anybody willing to go firsthand on the record and say these words till now. So I am very happy that I was able to share that with you tonight on the Earth Files YouTube channel. And Peggy, I'm curious what kind of comments and questions that we have. Hi, Linda. First, I'd like to say thank you to all the Super Chats. So thank you, Moonbird. Thank you, Melissa, Demonic Chords, Jeffrey Rizzo, Isabella Pacchetti, Sexy Sadie, Dolores Graff, David Goodrich, and Reality Nonfiction. Thank you so much. Wow. Uh, I love all of you, and I love all of your creative names, and thank you so much. Everything helps in this in seemingly in, uh, increasingly difficult world uh, to keep things going, and so I'm extremely grateful uh, for your super chats. And now, Peggy, what about questions? I have a great question here. Uh, someone would like to know, have you ever had an anonymous or a secret source contact you that you thought might actually be counterintelligence? Oh, most of them are counterintelligence. Um, counterintelligence wants to divert you. Counterintelligence wants you to drop the beat. Counterintelligence wants to get you off of the serious paths onto things that are red herrings. That's the definition of counterintelligence. 
I have been trying to get to the bottom of what the truth is about other intelligences of what seems a variety interacting with this planet, with the moon, with Mars, with the moons of Mars, with the moons of Jupiter and on since working on A Strange Harvest about animal mutilations in 1979. And over the 41 years to this time tonight, September of 2020 is exactly 41 years from when I began in September of 1979 for the very first time in my life to investigate animal mutilations, having no idea in the beginning that I would be sitting across from sheriffs and deputies and ranchers who would be telling me about beams of light and UFOs and Sheriff Tex Grave saying the perpetrators are creatures from outer space. I had no idea. And I had no idea that during the entire nine months that I worked on that documentary for television, a 90-minute special, 18-hour days, no holiday, no break, I had no idea that when the crew and I were at various locations in Wyoming and in Colorado and New Mexico, that we had intel we had people with cameras who were following, who were videotaping or filming, uh, monitoring, but they were. And later on, it would be proved to me that we were monitored. So that means that the government was nervous about anybody doing honest, straightforward reporting on animal mutilations especially since I was interviewing people who said the perpetrators are creatures from outer space. I had no idea that it was a sensitive hotspot with the United States government in 1979 to 1980. So coming to the question, you get counter intel in spades when you're trying so hard to understand what the truth is in something you don't know a lot about. That's when you're most easily diverted. But what kept me on the path were the first-hand stories of the ranchers, of the sheriffs, the deputies, the newspaper people, the TV people, who are all out also dealing with these bodies with no blood, often with organs missing, with the beams of light that would be seen. I've talked with ranchers. They would never go on camera. And in doing that documentary, A Strange Harvest, I wanted it all to be firsthand interviews, people speaking for themselves. But there were at least three ranchers, not just in Colorado, who told me during the production of A Strange Harvest, remember this is 79 to 80, 41 years ago, that they had seen with their own eyes, out in their own land, a beam of light 
coming out of the sky down into a pasture. Sometimes they heard a cow bellowing. And then it could be, the description would be that either they saw an animal lowered or they saw an animal rise up. And that's when, to me, the texture of what I was investigating began to shift from, is the government of the United States doing some kind of environmental sampling of animals because there is a nerve agent like what happened in Utah of the Dugway Proving Ground that was killing the sheep? Were the animals uh, some sort of an experiment that the United States government was carrying on secretly? That's how I went into it in the beginning. That's why I called up the Central Intelligence Agency in Langley, Virginia. Some of you might remember my talking about how naive I was, assuming that I was an American journalist, a manager in a TV station, the director of a department where we made documentaries, and that I assumed that I had a right, <laughs> I had a responsibility to call up the Central Intelligence Agency in Langley and say, can you help me with an interview about what could be causing these bloodless, trackless animal mutilations and being transferred to one or two people? They didn't hang up. They actually transferred me. And who I got was a female voice that was so cold it is the voice in my mind that I've always thought it was just exactly like ice, cold, hard ice. And she's the one I said, do you have a field agent that I could interview for this documentary I'm doing about animal mutilations and getting that cold, cold, we don't ever provide field agents for interviews with anyone in the news. Well then, they had me marked. They knew where I worked. They knew where I lived. They knew what I was doing. I have no idea how many people, how many calculations. We have to stop her. I have been up against things that I didn't understand. I have felt threatened. But there was also always that internal pressure. You have to find out the truth. And that's what kept me going. And that's where A Strange Harvest came from the film that would lead to Strange Harvest 1993 that I did on my own after leaving Channel 7 to sign the contract with Home Box Office, a whole new level of government interference, pressure. So it's kind of gone in stages in my life. And then finally, I think you get to a point where I guess for me, 
I started to say, I know. But it isn't so much knowing as an accumulation of, it seems like it has to be thousands now, thousands of discussions, thousands of people. I've traveled the world. It isn't the United States government that is creating all of the places that I've been where all of these animal mutilations have occurred in both hemispheres. I no longer have any doubt. I know. That's what I meant. I know that other intelligences are the ones behind the bloodless, trackless animal mutilations in which hearts can be removed from inside of a pericardium without any cut to the pericardium, not one drop of blood inside of the chest of the animal where the heart has been removed. That's not human technology. That is molecular extraction. And I have talked with people in science aspects of the government who understand and know that there is such a thing as molecular extraction. So, counter-intel, they've always tried, I think, to deflect, give misinformation, try to make me run after the wrong direction. But I think as I sit here before you tonight, it's raining again outside in this strange summer to winter to summer to winter. With animal mutilations happening again in cycles in France, Washington State, Oregon, South America, they continue. There has never been a year since I started with that crew and that documentary, A Strange Harvest. There's not been one single year where there have not been dozens of bloodless, trackless animal mutilations somewhere on this planet. So, I hope then that you would look at my work, what fuels me to be here on Wednesday nights, is that what I care about more than anything else is the pressure of fact and truth, no matter how complex, no matter how stunning, shocking, and maybe sometimes exhilarating, what we find out about other intelligences interacting with this planet and the earth life on this planet, all of it, good, bad, and in between, I feel deeply and firmly that every single one of us deserves to know everything that the governments and the power brokers use to manipulate us. So, counter-intel, I'm sure it's been there in spades, but as far as I can tell, I was never deflected from the truth. What about another question, Peggy? I think similar to this topic that we're on, another viewer would like to know, have you ever had your house checked for bugs? Yes. Yes. I'll tell you a funny story. 
the first, first, the very first was the phone company in Denver when I was working at Channel 7 while I was working on A Strange Harvest. I had so many problems with my phones, and then they confirmed, yes, there's an official tap on your line. Uh, and when I said who, they said, we can't tell you. So I started in 79 to 1980 on the phone. But here, here is something that is, it actually was funny. Uh, I was approached when I moved to uh, Philadelphia, and I moved to Philadelphia in uh, 1990, around in there, I was in Los Angeles uh, as the creator and producer on the sighting series in Los Angeles for about five or six months at the beginning of 1990 period. Uh, but then I went back to Philadelphia to keep my daughter in school and uh, and I moved into two different places. And in both places, somebody approached me in, from a political position. They were in politics, provably so. They were actually working for candidates for various offices. They were interested in the possibility of UFOs and ETs as being the next sexy subject that would hit the planet and that maybe they would be able to use it politically. I remember having conversations and saying, I think you're underestimating the complicated facets and the impact of what has at least crossed my path as this is very complex. There isn't a straight single answer to any of it. But this led, because they were in politics and because they were dealing with people who were running for elective office, one person was running for a high elective office. They said, we'd like to come over. These are two different residences, two different years, two different political operations. We'd like to come over and attach our bugging equipment throughout to see what might be in your, where you live. <laughs> both places, both times, everything that could go off was going off. And it was because I was so tapped and so monitored that they decided that if that was happening to me, a humble reporter, that they weren't going to take on those subjects. And I found that uh, both entertaining that they thought it could possibly be of political advantage to get into UFOs and ETs at one point, and then they got afraid of the red steady light on phones and walls. Um, there was one other, uh, just to give you an example, uh, I won't go into names, and to protect the innocent, I won't even talk about locations. Let's just say it wasn't in the United States. I was in another country. Uh, I was doing uh, investigations. I'd been invited to speak someplace. And this one particular night, I was asked to join in a small group, like a, a, like a little dinner party to talk about my investigative work 
And one of the people that they brought who was supposed to be, uh, we'll say an innocent public person, I had seen their photograph in a private file and knew that that person was working for the Central Intelligence Agency. And I even knew what department in a particular area and what city and what for the CIA. And I had to maintain a poker face while sitting at a dinner in which the discussion was supposed to be those of us in the world who are trying honestly to get to the bottom of UFOs, ETs, abductions, animal mutilations, crop circles, the true nature of the genetic manipulation of our planet. And it was all done in the context that we were all innocent citizens. But I had that one edge. I never said a thing. That person doesn't know that I knew who they really were. And frankly, I remember thinking, if that person doesn't know what I know, it's not my loss or gain. So I think we all had a delightful conversation. I don't remember that person contributing very much. I think it was the other people that uh, were honestly involved with investigations and were reporting, and it, it was I learned material. But this is now just a kind of a bell-shaped curve of the kind of experiences that you get into, and you hope, you pray, that the government with intel and counterintel understands the difference between people who are honestly trying to pursue truth inside of a government that's supposed to be of, by, and for the people because they feel that the subject matter is important enough that it should be reported and that we are not the people that they would attack and destroy. If it ever came to that, then it's all lost anyway. And so in some strange way, I guess I look at the fact that I'm still alive and I'm still investigating and I'm still reporting and I'm still finding every week of my life something new to report gives me some kind of strange hope that the nation that we are in now that is so troubled, so fractured, that the government hasn't killed some of us who have spent a life trying to get to the bottom of something seemingly rightfully do our civilization, that we're not alone in this universe, and getting some honest answers about what is here, why is it here, how long has it been here, who made us, what is our real true role, 
I don't think that those are questions that humans should run away from. I do not think that those are questions that governments and power brokers should have only the unique and specialized information about. And that's why I love having you and coming together on Wednesdays to try to keep expanding what I think is the most important information that any of us can be investigating far, far, far beyond governments. So I hope you continue to feel the same way as I do and that um, I'm glad I'm here. And Peggy, what about one or two more? We have a great question. Regarding the alien phenomena, do you feel that it's a case of either extraterrestrials, interdimensional beings, or time travelers as being the cause? All of them. Now, that's another thing I have come to completely agree with Jacques Vallée. I really do think that the phenomena that we're dealing with is some of it, I am convinced, is other dimensional and that the definition of dimension in my mind now could be an infinite number of dimensions. I've used the metaphor of an 88 keyboard piano to give the feeling of something that you can relate to your mind and imagine if you're in this key to the left as far as you can go on a piano keyboard. That's the lowest frequency that you can go on a piano. If you go as far as you can reach to the right, that is the highest frequency that you can go on a piano. Let's say that the piano is the metaphor for only one facet of cosmos with a C. All of those keys, white and black, all of those frequencies, each frequency could have an infinite number of universes. That's what I'm beginning to sense. It used to be that you looked out at the night sky and the universe and we were told it's 13.8 billion light years and now it's been moved back a little bit younger to 13.4. And you would think this is, it. this is it. This is the all of everything that there can possibly be. This expanding singular universe. But the first person who ever made me that's Linda, that's narrow thinking, this is a singular universe, was a person who was a scientist, a human in the human abduction category, never wanted his name in the public. This story has uh, never really been fleshed out. But he was shown in an abduction by beings that were greys, of some sort greys, a hologram in which the beings are showing the scientists, here's your universe. You're paired with another universe that is completely the opposite of the one you're in, but you're joined. These two universes, they're a, a piece. And then uh, there were 
four more pairs so that we were in a unit of 10, not galaxies, 10 universes, paired universes, five pairs. And the scientists got the impression there was an infinite number of these pairings, but that the, the key, the key to understanding this universe, this particular one universe, was to ultimately define, discover the paired universe. And that once we knew that we were in a paired universe and that there were more paired universes, and this went on infinitely like Roger Penrose talks about, then you begin to, your mind begins to think in frequencies that dinosaurs could be running right through here, but they're in a different frequency. And that the advanced technologies of the non-humans that we are dealing with have the ability to use technology that they could make me disappear or the chair disappear or the walls disappear or the ceiling disappear or the dragonfly drones that would flicker in and out, or as one physicist explained to me, he said, it appears that they can rheostat, using that word rheostat, like when you go to a wall and you turn the knob and the light goes br brighter or dim, however you want it, that's rheostatting the frequency. And this physicist long ago said to me, uh, we appear to be dealing with intelligences that know how to rheostat Planck's constant. Well, that was a hell of a profound hit. I mean, Planck's constant, that, that determines the distance between the electrons, the protons, the quarks, the charms, the whole nine yards. It's everything. If, and if you changed Planck's constant one, I don't know how far out in the decimals. My hand wouldn't be able to do that to that wooden table. That it would mean that if you moved Planck's constant the tiny bit of degree that the issue of matter being solid or frequencies completely changes just there. So the idea that you could have an infinite number of frequencies with an infinite number of universes, what do you get next? Quintillions and tillions of timelines. And that to me is one of the biggest conundrums because time appears to be a variable for the non-humans. They know how to stop it. They know how to come into it from another dimension, another timeline, another frequency. They know how to come in and interact with matter life, but they can leave it like that. And they can take, uh, as in some abduction cases, where people said, the only thing I could figure is I was gone for more than a year but where they brought me back was only a second or a minute after the flash of light or whatever it was. So when you start thinking about infinite 
possibilities of timelines, in infinite frequencies, like that piano and the keys. Each key, infinite number of universe says, inside of one frequency. But that you could have 88 frequencies all with an infinite number of universes and timelines. And your head might start feeling a little <laughs> a little affected by thinking about this, but I actually enjoy it. I, I love to think about the possibilities in terms of their endless variations because I do think this is much closer to the truth and therefore collapse it all down. Any given interaction between a matter being us and something that has the ability to come through the wall or the window or the floor or the ceiling or the body of a plane or a car they're controlling frequency in some way, and if it's rheostatting Planck's constant, maybe that would explain it. The physics is challenging to prove that, but maybe it's already been proved and the government already knows. Maybe they've got the equipment to do it. But what when you then are talking with people who say, um, it wasn't a being that came through the wall. It seemed to be a shadow. That's one. Or it seemed to be thick glowing light. Or it looked like smoke. Or I think that all of these variations could be time travelers, other dimensionals, and not just extraterrestrial biological entity from somewhere else in the universe. Or all three could be interacting with a standing up humanoid primate that Planck's constant gives matter in this universe a certain ability to interact. And that Instead of being afraid of it, I find that I'm very curious to know just how complex it all is and that the biggest box of all, and I'll leave it on this question for another show at some point, where do all the avatars of history that we know of on earth and the concept of yin and yang, the black and the white, and the white and the black. And the concern about why, how can we be in a universe created by a divine field that has evil in it? That probably is the most profound question that I feel in 2020. And I have learned something recently 
about that question that in a future program I'll go into has something to do with that cold, dark sea that surrounds all the universes. I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface on how complex consciousness, consciousness in frequencies is or can be. I love you guys. for listening to this Earth Files podcast from the edges of science, environment, and real X-Files. Go to www.earthfiles.com to see more than a thousand Earth Files reports with photographs, drawings, and documents. And visit Earth Files every day, every week, for new reports and new podcasts. That's www.earthfiles.com. 